cybersecurity has always evoked science fiction. But recent technological developments are pushing the boundary between imagination and reality. If you can imagine having a question and instead of going to your smartphone or computer and using a search engine and typing in a question, you literally think a question and the answer comes back to you. Or you want to send an email or a message to someone and you think it to them and it goes out through the brain machine interface. It sounds so much like science fiction, this is something that is already being worked on in research labs. The issue there is what if someone were to hack this chip? What would you do? Would you wipe your brain like you wipe a computer? I'm Katie Finlayson. Welcome to Hackable Me, a series that dives into the world of cybercrime and data security. Before we time travel to that slightly terrifying future, let's recap the current state of cybercrime with Ryan Callenbar, the Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy at Prepoint. You heard him on episode one. Ryan says there are three broad categories of attacks against people or organizations. More than 90% of, of data breaches are what we call phishing attacks. Uh, the second big category are attacks on things like cloud accounts that very often uh, relies on one of two incredibly common techniques, one of which is called password spraying, where you take a very common password, maybe autumn 2020 exclamation point, something along those lines, uh, and then just try it across loads and loads and loads of accounts. Some of them will, in fact, be using that incredibly common password. And if uh, perhaps you have to reset your password every month, you won't be using autumn, you'll be using April 2020 exclamation point. Again, that's likely to work some percentage of the time because we humans are incredibly predictable and we pick the same passwords over and over and over again, and attackers know that. Are you cringing? Then pause the podcast and go and change those passwords right now. The other type of cloud account attack we're seeing quite frequently is a, an app that masquerades as a legitimate one that can then connect to your cloud account. Uh, we're seeing apps impersonate common business productivity tools like Microsoft SharePoint, Microsoft OneDrive, Google Drive. That you can actually log into the real Microsoft or the real Google and simply trust this malicious third-party app that is, again, representing itself as a browser extension, a mobile app, or a productivity app that's going to be connected to your cloud office account. And those have become far more common as things like multi-factor authentication, that is getting an extra code or a push notification in order to verify that you are who you say you are, actually becomes more commonly deployed, especially in large corporations and governments. The third type of attack that we're seeing is on things that face the internet that are not patched. Those broad categories of things facing the internet that are insecure is largely focused on VPNs right now, but it also of course includes web servers as I said, and things like cloud infrastructure that hasn't been locked down appropriately. Uh, it is shocking to the degree uh, that you see sensitive data simply left or lying around, open to the public internet uh, in things like Amazon Web Services, uh, what are called buckets, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is just a blob of data storage sitting there on the internet for anyone to find with the appropriate tools. So there's phishing attacks, cloud software attacks, and attacks on data that hasn't been properly secured, often through VPNs. And as if we didn't already have enough to worry about with COVID-19, the fact that many of us are accessing office networks from our home computers 
is exposing us to a greater risk of this kind of attack. Stated simply, you're behind a different set of controls on your home network versus within the office. Your network security controls are different. You might be uh, not behind a proxy. Uh, you might be using a device that's not even owned by the corporation in order to do your work and accessing a cloud service directly. At the same time, uh, you have a different set of social dynamics operating. So whereas a transaction might be the sort of thing that you would walk down the hall and talk to a colleague before approving, you know, now that colleague isn't down the hall. You're not in the same building anymore. So approving it might be something you do electronically. You might not bother to pick up the phone and call them. Uh, that is a scammer's dream, of course, because you're not doing the same forms of verification. But finally, there's also social pressure in terms of just good behavior, not doing uh, things that are risky with a, a corporation's data. Uh, that is, again, something that plays directly into the adversary's hands. And, of course, we're also grappling with the possibility that people misuse sensitive data or valuable data for their own ends. Uh, and when you're doing so from a home network and a home computer, you might be not monitored in the same way in terms of your handling of that sensitive data as you would be under normal circumstances. All of this creates risk from a cybersecurity perspective. One type of attack that's getting plenty of attention at the moment due to many of us working from home is remote video conferencing. Hi, my name is Shara Evans. I'm a technology futurist and keynote speaker. There have been a number of incidents that have occurred in the United States with respect to online learning. And one example involved somebody yelling profanity and shouting out a teacher's home address in the middle of a class. Another online teaching session was accessed by an unidentified individual who displayed swastikas and basically started to display hate information in the middle of a classroom session. And there have been other incidents of pornographic or hate images or threatening language that had popped up in the middle of meetings. As a result of this cyber attack, the FBI issued warnings about teleconferencing and online classroom hijacking. Video conferencing software companies then rolled out a series of updates to tighten their security. But cyber criminals are clever at coming up with new strategies and also at covering their tracks. There's lots of ways not to get caught if you're an attacker. And one of the more obvious ones is to use the compromised account belonging to someone else. If I'm able to compromise someone who might be a trusted supplier, a trusted partner, a trusted colleague of yours, I can simply use their account to do everything that I need to do. Even better than that, use services like Office 365 and Google Docs and Box and Dropbox, all these things that are wonderfully available to me as an attacker, all these accounts that are easy to compromise. And I never have to actually leave any trace of my own infrastructure. Cyber criminals can also target everyday technology in our homes. Items such as smart speakers, or voice-activated digital assistants. All of these devices can be used to make our lives simpler. And it's very natural for us humans to talk to devices. But if you think about threat vectors, there are quite a few. The first has to do with who is actually controlling that 
voice interface that you are speaking into? And are they storing the conversations that you have with it and the people around you? And what you need to remember is that they're in the background and they supposedly only activate once they hear their wake up keyword, but they need to be listening for that keyword. But if you can imagine having a device that's sitting in your home and recording every conversation, you can just imagine the potential threat vectors from social engineering and the information that would be learned by hackers about that. If I were thinking about potential ways that a hacker could obtain information from a voice-activated device, there would be two primary methodologies. One would be hacking into your home network, and it may be because you have unsecured Wi-Fi connections in your house that are not encrypted. The other way would be a bit more sophisticated, but would involve hacking into the database of the organization who is collecting and processing the voice commands and conversations that you're having. So our information at work can be stolen, our devices at home can be compromised, and even when we're at our most vulnerable, when we're sick, yes, Cyber criminals are lurking in the sphere of medical care as well. We're at a stage right now where implantable technology is not only possible, it's been in the medical world for many years now. Believe it or not, these technologies have already been hacked into, and the way that they're hacked into is generally through wireless communications. So is very doable. Common medical implants, such as pacemakers or insulin pumps, often include a computer chip so that doctors can remotely tweak their patterning or dosages. But if that data isn't protected securely, a patient is at risk of a cyber criminal controlling their vitals. The current state of cybercrime is scary enough, but looking to the future possibilities might make your hair stand on end. Deep fakes involve taking audio and video of a person and superimposing somebody else's voice and image on top of it. So imagine that you're in a business, you're now used to using video conferencing and you've gotten to know the background of your coworkers, the sort of bookcase they might have behind them and so on. And suddenly you're in a video conferencing call with a person that you think you know, but really someone has hacked into that video stream that looks like the person you know, sounds like the person you know, and has the appropriate background that you've been accustomed to seeing for that person. And now that so many of us are working remotely with video conferencing, I think the incentive for professional cyber criminals to further develop this technology for monetary gain is now there. Making convincing deep fakes will require pretty sophisticated technology. But Ryan Cullenberg thinks the cyber criminals of the future will continue to focus their efforts on the easier way in. As we develop the ability to write more and more secure software, 
certainly what we're going to make some of the mistakes that we've made in years past. We're going to ship some really terrible code that ends up on the internet. Yes, that, that will happen. But again, attackers are going to go for the weakest link, and that is simply going to remain humans. And humans are just too easy to trick into clicking on things. So with that, I think a push further in the direction of maybe more complex social engineering that is also hosted on cloud services that we trust, which you've already started to see. A lot of attacks are simply hosted now on OneDrive or SharePoint or Google Drive or any of these productivity services that allow you to store documents and allow you to even send messages to people. All that legitimate infrastructure are things that we have to trust as businesses, as organizations, as citizens in order to go about our lives. And attackers know that. So compromising legitimate things is going to continue to be a trend. Ryan believes that social engineering is still the most effective strategy. One of the things that works really well is social engineering at scale. If you can do the same sort of mass personalization that a retailer does to try and get you to buy a pair of shoes, you can be really effective in phishing someone. And it doesn't really require anything that properly deserves the title of artificial intelligence or even machine learning. From a technical perspective, there's not a lot of innovation happening. That said, there is a wonderful amount of creativity being poured into the different social engineering schemes that attackers are using because it really is about figuring out how to get through to that human and make them fall for whatever you're trying to exploit. Social media will increasingly be an element in the cyber criminals' arsenal. When it comes to social media, there have been a number of risks that have been on the rise for quite a few years now. One of the things that I have found extremely disturbing for a long time is the amount of information that people freely post on websites. I am constantly amazed that people will put their real birth date, sometimes their home address, the fact that they're going on a vacation. There is a huge amount of information that is being put out on social media, and there are very well-funded cyber criminal organizations, some of which are state-funded, that are putting together massive data warehouses of information about people that they have scraped from a number of different websites and have used it to start profiling all kinds of patterns for individuals using tools like artificial intelligence for pattern recognition and detecting people's likelihood to be interested in particular things, they are starting to use that as the basis for scams, which might lead to identity theft or perhaps to downloading malware on your computer and when you go to do your internet banking, the next thing you know, all of your funds have somehow been transferred out of your account. Technology has become part of almost every element of our lives, and that will only increase in the future. Are there any steps we can take today to help protect our future selves and our organizations? Basically, we have taken technology. We have wired it all together, uh, meaning computers connected to an internet on a completely open protocol. Um, and we've connected everything through this TCP IP stack. Everything is on the same network. Every psychopath on the planet is our neighbor. Uh, they can send us messages. 
they can, in many cases, access the network connections that we depend on. And no one knows how to write secure software so that it can stand up to a human adversary trying to find holes in it. But you can take action now to minimize the risks. Being able to have visibility into email threats and stopping them is probably step one for most organizations. Security awareness training is incredibly important in understanding human vulnerability to these sorts of attacks, especially if you can test with the real ones. And understanding who is doing what with sensitive data really is the third leg of that stool, making sure you have some visibility into it, whether that is happening in the cloud, whether it's happening in traditional on-premises infrastructure, whether it's happening on endpoints you own or endpoints you manage in some way. All of those things can be incredibly helpful in turning the tide against social engineering-driven attackers. I always recommend to people that when it comes to social media, First of all, take a look at what you're posting. And in particular, do you have your birth date on your social media profile or your physical address or things that could lead to identity theft? And if the answer is yes, then take it down. Another trick is anytime you're asked to enter your birth date, unless it's an official government agency or financial institution that you're dealing with, use different fake birth dates for different things. There are a lot of websites that quote unquote require you to enter your birth date in order to access information or access a service, but they actually don't really need to know your birth date. So give them a fake birth date. And if you have lots of fake birth dates, then a cyber criminal will have a much more difficult time with identity theft. Just like a lot of other accounts, using multi-factor authentication is a fantastic way to protect your social media. And the same applies in social media as uh, as an email. Unsolicited links from random places, you don't have to click those. You really, really don't. Shara Evans believes mitigating risk comes back to design. Right now, security and privacy tend to be afterthoughts in terms of rolling out technology. It's mainly about what kind of cool stuff can I do? And then the security and privacy aspect comes up after something's gone wrong, and then they try to fix it after the fact. We need to get out of that modality and build our products and services with security and privacy as part of the initial design process and part of the testing process. The lure of the shiny and new propels us towards the latest models and software. And not many of us take the time to consider how secure the newest technology might be. As we march towards a future where technology is an even bigger part of our lives, perhaps the best way to protect ourselves against cyber criminals is to remember the human cannot be separated from the machine. There's always tremendously good uses of technology, but at the same time, potential dangers. I'd like to draw an analogy to a knife. You could use a knife in your kitchen to make a beautiful meal, or you could turn around and use that same knife to stab somebody. The knife is not inherently good or bad. It's what we decide to do with it that actually is the catalyst for it being a wonderful tool or a weapon. And that's true of all the emerging technologies that I look at.
I'm Katie Finlayson, and this is Hackable Me. My thanks to my guests, Ryan Cullumber and Shara Evans. This is the final episode in our four-part series about cybersecurity. Find the full series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hackable Me was produced by Enigma Marketing and Audiocraft. Music is from Epidemic Sound. Find out more about how you can protect yourself and your organization from cyber attacks. Visit proofpoint.com slash hackableme.